Welcome to Built for Life, the podcast dedicated to socially conscious property professionals who believe the future can be better than the present and your property decisions make it so. So to all of the innovators, this podcast will give you behind the scenes access to industry leading experts and researchers on how they think, create, analyze and deliver the best buildings in the world. Extracting their key advice, information and considerations that you can apply to your personal and professional life. This is Adam Hines with my co-host Jordan Ralph. Welcome to the Built for Life podcast. Well, hello there, property professionals and well-being enthusiasts. Welcome to another episode of the Built for Life podcast, and today's guest is Holly Holder. Holly is an industry-leading academic researcher who has most lately been investigating the relationship between healthy aging and safe, accessible homes across the UK population. And Holly currently holds the position of Senior Evidence Manager at the Centre for Aging Better, leading their evidence strategy. And previously, she was also a fellow at Nuffield Trust, which is a leading think tank and research organisation on health and social care, as well as National Operations Manager for Urgent and Emergency Care at the NHS. So most recently, Holly, with her team at the Centre for Aging Better, who in partnership with Care and Repair England, have just released a fascinating but alarming academic report on creating and adapting good homes for aging well, which we discuss in detail throughout this talk. And this talk really, really is a great listen for every single person, as you're going to learn what the biggest risks in the home are for anyone over the age of 55 years and really how badly these risks can impact someone's lifespan if they are present in the home. So if you're in that category of 55 years of age or older, you really need to hear this to protect yourself from the biggest risks on your your healthy lifespan as you get older. And even if you're under the age of 55, you most likely know someone in that age category and your advice and knowledge could literally extend their healthy lifespan uh, by many, many, many years. So just to put this in perspective, following the conversation we had with Holly, Jordan went straight to his grandparents' house and he spent the next two weeks designing adaptions and making changes to their home to mitigate the risks and the hidden dangers their homes uh, created to their health. So his actions as a result of this conversation uh, will likely have an enormous impact on his grandparents' quality of life and reducing the risk of any issues uh, caused by the home. So where you can find Holly, you can get her on email at holly.holder at aging-better.org.uk. And you can also access all of Aging Better's resources at www.aging-better.org.uk. Now, without further ado, please enjoy this amazing show. Okay, huge welcome to the show, Holly. Hello, lovely to be here. 
Fantastic. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. And it's very, very timely considering the majority of the globe is uh, currently in lockdown or on at least restricted movements. So our interest today is really looking at because people are forced to be spending significantly more time in their homes than normal. Um, and therefore, the, the influence on their uh, of their physical environment is greater on their health and well-being. So this topic today is particularly relevant for elderly communities, uh, as they are obviously the most at risk, and they've also been on lockdown the longest. So this will be a really interesting uh, discussion today. So let's just dive straight in. And what I wanted to do, Holly, was just to rewind the clock Okay. And start at the beginning of your, even before your career, to understand what your original fascination was with with healthcare, and specifically for healthcare for aging communities. As to why is that uh, of significant importance to you? Well, I guess my original, the, the reason that I got into research in the first place is that I'm a a curious person and I love hearing people's stories and so if you have the privilege of working as a researcher your your job really is to go around and to understand the world from different people's perspectives and health is such a huge component of that um, it's so it's such an important part of all of our lives how we see our own health, how that changes over time, is really important. And, I, and also because people experience health in, in different ways, um, the huge inequalities that exist in terms of um, access and treatment um, to healthcare services, diagnostic treatments, it, it all adds up into the fabric of, of what we experience in our in our lives, what we as a society um, are providing to our communities, and so that's really where my my interest sparked. It's a way of trying to understand um, society, people's stories, and then putting it into the the policy context, which I think is one of the most important of all, which is which is healthcare. And that's the beginning of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I agree. It's um, it's a really important um, process to capture the reality of people's lives, their day to day lives, and the things that are impacting them, and and I suppose bridging the gap between the the reality of their life and then how policy is designed, created, and then implemented. Um, yeah. So that's quite a fascinating process to to really yeah. capture that accurately. And I think from a, to take it to, to answer your question a bit about the aging lens, when we think about healthcare, there's there's the one thing which is the structural environment in which we we um, operate. So there's the quality of the healthcare that we're offered, how equal our access is to that. But there's also how we as individuals respond, how we treat our bodies, how we interact with the health services, how we interact with others around us, and of course that changes over time, and that changes. Um, with respect to how different people see the aging process and as we know that we've got an aging population and that leads into all sorts of ethical questions really about what do we what do we expect for the treatment for older people how do we see ourselves how can we motivate ourselves and others to take preventative action which will mean that we can 
age and enjoy a, a healthier later life. So it's all woven into um, what's becoming a, an in, more increasingly important agenda around um, health and aging and of course other areas of our lives. Yeah, and um, just looking, if we if we zoom out a little bit at the, I suppose the overall demographics of the UK, um, there there's a in the coming years, there's a, there's going to be a shift, isn't there, in sort of the demo, the aging demographic that the the dominant percentage of the um, the population is going to be at a, in the later years of their life as opposed to earlier years. So this is going to be a, a more and more important topic as time goes on it is yes and it and and um part of what we try and do at the center for aging better is also try to change the narrative on that when we talk about that in you know the, the media politicians is that brings a lot of negativity a lot of negative language pressure on services a lack of uh, people taking more from um public services than that than they're than they're giving in and actually, there's a whole sort of, for example, there's a hidden workforce of older people who are providing unpaid care, people doing voluntary roles. And um, there's some really interesting research which we've um, supported that's come out of LSE that's showing that actually this isn't a huge burden on the NHS and the way that people are talking about it. And so although we are experiencing these population changes, it's also important that we take a more balanced approach to really um, understanding that as a society and, and, as a, and as a government, there are options available to how we organize our services, where we get taxes from, recognizing the unpaid contributions that um, millions of older people, retired people make. So it's a really important debate, but also one that we're trying to influence from the sidelines to sort of change the language that we use and try and change some of these age stereotypes. So this is probably a great time to um, tell us a little bit about the research that you have just published in partnership with Care and Repair England, as this pr provides a, a really good um, snapshot and foundation as to the relationship of how the home environment is influencing people's physical and mental health uh, as they're aging. So okay just to give a, an overview of what the research was that you undertook and what I suppose the key findings were for how important decent homes are for your later life. Yeah of course so we published a report called Home and Drive a Need for Decent Homes in Later Life uh, last month and that the ambition there was really to try and put down on paper the scale of the problem. We wanted to use um, data that's collected from the English Housing Survey to demonstrate um, that this is, this is not an infrequent occurrence. We have millions of people living in poor quality housing and that has serious implications for their physical and their mental health. It also leads people into poverty and all sorts of other financial insecurities, which again, of course, can have repercussions for your health. And it can also have serious implications for people's ability to go about with their everyday activities inside and outside of the, of the house. So we took this survey data and we analyzed it. And one of the things that we found was that we've got just over 4 million 
of these poor quality homes in England. Almost half of those are lived in by someone over the age of 55. And that's important because we know that there's a correlation between how likely you are to have health problems um, and your increasing age. And what's really interesting, and, and this, is, this predates our research, and actually, is, you know, you can find publications, for example, by the World Health Organization that really illustrate the link between living in a poor quality home, and that means a home that might be damp, it might be cold, it might be hazardous, full of trip hazards. That means that uh, it can actually cause or exacerbate health conditions such as respiratory conditions, heart problems. It can increase your likelihood of having a stroke. So we wanted to illustrate the, the scale of this, of the challenge that we're facing. So of those uh, 4 million non-decent homes, we know that actually that equates to around 10 million people. So it's no small number. Um, and as I've explained, that your risk of living in one of these homes is not shared equally amongst, um, amongst our society. So yes, it's a, it's a huge issue. And other things that we found are that uh, we wanted also to demonstrate. So this, there's a huge personal cost to people that live in one of these homes. But there's also a huge cost and um, implications for the NHS. So we asked um, BRE, who were a, um, a consultancy, to do some uh, financial costings modelling for us. And they found that um, just thinking about the people who are over the age of 55 households that are headed up by somebody over the age of 55, that it costs the NHS just over £500 million alone just on, on first year treatment costs for those people who are over the age of 55 living in the poorest quality housing. Um, and if we invested, if we put the money that we need and invested and we brought all of the housing stock up to, to being of a good and a decent quality, we would pay that back in savings to the NHS in just eight years. So it's not to say that we wanted to illustrate the, the, illustrate the scale of the problem but also, looking back, we, we sort of do talk through a few of these points um, in the report that there are ways that you can tackle this. This isn't an impossible challenge um, that can't be overcome. There are lots of people who are responsible, lots of stakeholders, lots of different groups that all pay a, play a part in contributing to the current situation. Um, and, and collective action could mean that, that, we, that we could solve it. Holly, um, it's Jordan here. Um, yeah. Probably the first time I've I've spoken on this podcast, so people would probably wonder why I've just suddenly um, <laughs> jumped into this? the conversation. Hey, who's this? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a secure line. Um, <laughs> just listening to you talk is re really fascinating. I, I suppose on on the back of that, I've got two questions for for you: is is this a um, is this a problem seen in um, home ownership or or rental um, in, as part of your research and? And you, you, you spoke there about actually this is a, a, a problem that could actually be fixed relatively simply with the right um, intervention and the right approach from, from industry. Maybe if you could just explain a few things that you think could, could actually help um, change those, those um, things in property to actually to bring them up. And you, you said about if, if um, the payback could be eight years for the NHS, that's quite a short time frame um, in, in any uh, investment payback. So it'd be interesting to see what what things could be done to 
to, to influence that. Yeah, well, the two questions are actually really related. So it's, it's, a, it's a really good point. And um, when we talk about this poor quality housing, um, or which we measure, by the way, by the, the government's got a, a standard of decency. So what we're actually talking about is a government standard, a recognised standard that there are these 4.3 million homes that fall below that standard. Um, that if you're thinking about how you might change your sort of routes to change of the situation, it's really important to think about where those houses sit. Um, and so the majority of them, 62% uh, are own-occupied. That means that 62%, two-thirds, um, are the sole responsibility of the homeowner. So if you're a homeowner, you individually are responsible for maintaining the quality of your home. On the other hand, we've got 26% um, uh, of poor quality homes that are in the private rented sector and the, le the sector least likely to be um, to have a poor quality home are the social renters. So in terms of the number of houses, we're really, if we're really looking to make an impact, it would be on those who are owners. But the interesting point, and this is, this is bubbling to the surface now in terms of conversations around financial security and protections, are that within the private rented sector, uh, though, so those numbers I've just given you reflect the fact that as a society, we have more homes that are owner-occupied. But within the yeah. private rented sector, one in five of all privately rented homes are non-decent. So if you're a private wow. renter, you've got a one in five chance of living in a home that is cold, damp, um, with, full of hazards or uh, any of or all of the sort of main uh, definitions there. And that's important because if you're a private renter, obviously you've got restrictions on what you can do to a home. You are, you do have some, obviously, some tenants' protections and rights, but that is dependent on you instigating processes and having a receptive landlord. And, of course, many people, and um, there are, of course, many wonderful landlords out there, but in these examples where people are living in poor-quality homes, it's either the landlord doesn't know where to start or that... Uh, tenants don't necessarily report things because they feel under pressure that they might be evicted or it might require them to seek some further help from the council or local third sector organisations and they might just not know where to turn to for that support. Um, so it's a real problem um, particularly for the, the owner-occupier owner but we've got some serious mm. um, challenges in the private rented sector particularly as and um, thinking again about um, the impact on, on older people who, of course, um, are a particular group, not just because of their health, increasing health conditions, but also once somebody retires, they've obviously got um, less income. So the amount of money that they're paying, for example, on their rent is going to increase the proportion of the money that they've got coming in. Um, or for if they've got any ongoing mortgage payments. So their ability to pay for maintenance costs or repairs uh, is, is a particular challenge there. Um, Holly, just yeah. on that, yes. of the, 
the design aspects that would make a home go from decent to non-decent. Is it potential that the homes that are non-decent, there are a percentage of those that the occupants don't even know that they're in a non-decent home? Yep, so people may not um, have made that connection between their asthma or their problems breathing and the fact that they've got damp in the home or their, you know, heart con concerns and the ability that they are and their inability to heat their home to a suitable temperature because of poor insulation, for example. Um, so th there are a few reasons. So one is a sort of lack of knowledge that, that of the importance of the, the quality of the home. The other is that for some people, they might recognise the problem, but they simply can't afford to make any changes or it sits beyond their control. For example, if they're if they're a renter. But the other really important one is that um, because these poor quality homes don't just sit in people that have got low incomes. There are groups out there, groups of people who have a high income, who could afford to pay for these changes and um, but don't do it. And that's another really important gap. And the, the reason that um, in, in this research, we also did workshops with professionals in the field um, who run sort of repair, maintenance or commission some of these services. And often what they they come across in those circumstances is um, people who don't know how to organise um, building works, who are concerned about being ripped off, um, who may be for some sort of physical or mental health condition, uh, don't feel that they are practically able to um, to manage themselves or their condition whilst a certain number of works are going on. Um, and really generally people just not quite knowing where to turn for independent um, and trusted information and advice, which is why it's really crucial that um, local authorities, but also that we've got a sort of vibrant third sector organisations like your local citizens advice bureau for example um, who are uh, funded and able to support people through some of these changes so it isn't it isn't just about money um, so it's a really interesting sort of complex uh, set of reasons really for why people don't make some of these repairs and just sorry just a final thing just to say that we also um, in this financial modelling that BRE did for us, we asked them to, to have a look at how much it would cost to repair homes. And actually, they found that um, around a third of all non-decent homes could be repaired for less than £1,000. Wow. Yeah. That's so, amazing. So I think this, this need, and this is something that Aging Better's talked about before when it comes to you know, housing options for people in later life. This this real need for information and advice and support from a trusted um, source would go a long way to um, ensuring that people do make the changes that they need. Okay, just to pick up. So there's, I suppose, there's the two the two aspects. There is the information and advice. So one thing we'll do um, after this show is we'll post in the show notes below all of the aspects um, that make a non-decent home and what uh, basically the checklist for the highest risk items so anyone listening can um, have a read of that to identify what makes up a non-decent home and what things you should be aware of that could be detrimental um, to you and also your family members and your colleagues and friends 
um, because that's really important is spreading that awareness so people know what they should be looking out for and also they should know what the health implications are. And just um, I've got the, the Care and Repair England uh, document open in front of me from your research. And as you were um, just explaining how detrimental it could be, I just highlighted uh, a statistic that's it's unbelievably alarming and I'm, I'm surprised this hasn't got more airtime. And the, the statistics is about unequal aging and it says the gap in life expectancy between the least and most deprived areas of England was 9.4 years for men and 7.4 years for women. So it's almost 10 years difference in a life expectancy based on where you live. And also for, they've got a second dot point that says for healthy life expectancy, the gap was 19.1 years and 18.8 for uh, women. So that's 20 years of your life gone uh, from living in a healthy state of quality of life. So that's just an unbelievable statistic. And I hope that uh, this, this podcast will shed some light for the listeners to start to understand how important these home aspects are for your health. Mm. And just, just, just a, another really fascinating, depressing, <laughs> horrific <laughs> stat to add into that is that life expectancy normally um, just has a continual uh, decline. And what we've seen most recently is that it, the, uh, it is declining, but it's stagnated. But in the most recent figures for the poorest, um, some of the poorest groups in society, their life expectancy has actually deteriorated. So it's not just a case of um, the gap between um, uh, the wealthiest and the poorest and that as you've just highlighted there which is you know demonstrates the the scale of the problem that we've got here but we're actually seeing a reversal of life expectancy for some groups so some people's life expectancy is actually reducing and that's got to be something that we we pay far more attention to and recognize that we need to do far more um, as a society to keep growing and building and, and giving everybody the, the same opportunities. Mm. So what, if we just rewind back to you outlining the, what it would cost if we were to do an investment um, to fix these properties, that the funding um, that is required to complete those works to bring these homes from non-decent to decent how are you guys actively pushing to to raise that investment to achieve those works or is that is this research just been published for for people to understand but what's the sort of next steps for that to actively be pursued yeah so we've we've included in the report some of our sort of high level policy recommendations um for national and local government and for industry but what we want to do next is really to do a much more detailed piece of work, which is going to hopefully lead us to identifying some quite detailed um, policy plans, which we can use to try and influence government and others um, to adopt, um, which will go into much more detail about um, how we how we think they should address and, and yeah, in, invest that money in order to create decent uh, the housing stock that we that we want and the majority of your 
um, focus for lobbying? It sounds like it's with um, government at policy level. Is there any sort of interest from a private enterprise level with um, residential developers or um, build-to-rent providers or anything like that, or is it just predominantly no, policy? So, so on the on thinking about the homes that we've already got in our society, when we talk about industry here, one of the one of the um, industries that we're talking about is the financial sector. So when we think about um, those who are owner occupied and when we think about them, you know, that this being, you know, for less, for a third of people, this less than a thousand pounds. So there's something there about, but for, for others, it's obviously for the rest, it's much higher. How do we make sure that there are the financial products out there and that might be equity release, that might be um, access to other sorts of loans? How do we make sure that uh, the financial industry is there ready to respond and support homeowners, um, but also landlords to make the changes that, that we need? So, from, so when we think about the existing house, homes that we've got, we think about it from those sorts of angles. But also we think about um, the third sector and what we could do there to make sure that um, local communities have that level of response and are able there to provide some of that information, advice and signposting that people need. When we think about um, new homes and new building, that's where we are um, uh, in some ways linked to this report, but in also as part of other pieces of work that we're doing. We are, um, we've got, a, and actually it's called the Home Coalition. We've got a coalition of organisations who've come together to try and make sure that the, to try and raise the building standards so that the minimum standards for all new homes meet an acceptable level of accessibility um, and that are suitable for people throughout their lives. Um, often when we um, think about what would make a good home for somebody who's older, maybe in a wheelchair, actually those are homes that are suitable and provide benefits for people at all ages. So that might be that, you know, a wheelchair accessible uh, home is great for somebody who's got a buggy or the individuals themselves might not be in a wheelchair, but they might want to be visited by a friend who's in a wheelchair, for example. So it's about design, the design of homes in a way that enables people to stay in their homes as, as they age and to experience and enjoy their homes in a way um, that is without restrictions on who can come, what activities can be done in that home. So those are the ways in oh, which yeah. we're sort of engaging with builders. Yeah. Yeah, yes. no, I just, sorry, jumping in there just at the very end, but it, it was, um, so that nicely comes on to you saying about engaging builders is, is what could we all be doing better? We all, Adam and I work in the property sector and, and hopefully people listening to this are uh, representational of, of different areas of that property industry. What, what could we be doing better from a, from a new build perspective? Because that's the, the real opportunity to, to sort of drive some change in the way properties are designed um with a bit of through life thought as well um for how they can be easily adapted and consider the needs of an ever-changing and aging population the, the existing stock is obviously a very very different um sort of requirement and, and has its own um specialisms to meet that but what would you say we could be doing better right now as a to, to meet those new build requirements yeah well i think there's there's 
quite a lot um, <laughs> that we could be doing um, that would be that would be good. So we've done some um, research that so it goes right back to the planning stages, I think. So um, there's some recent research that shows that um, less than half of local house building plans included included a provision for accessible homes. So the first point is in the design of these homes and working with home builders and planners at local authority level to make sure that um, that we're designing properties that meet some of the projected demographic changes. Um, and so in terms of actual some of the specifics, um, what we're actually talking about just to get a tiny bit technical is this is what we're calling on the government to do is to change building regulations so that they're up to category two standards and this means mm -hmm. that they have basic accessibility features um, that make them as I said suitable for a range of people and it also means that they can be easily adapted down the line down the road when people may or may not um, may or may not need to to make those adaptations um, but we're not just talking about, so I guess there's some things, and, and for those who know those uh, regulations, that will be about um, having a step-free access into the home, that will be around having um, doorways that are a, are a certain width, and more generally, sort of stepping outside of those sorts of regula regulations, um, we also have to have a think about, um, we've got some of the smallest and um, properties in Europe in terms of our new builds, we actually need to be paying much more attention to building homes that people actually experience that are, are light and not just sort of warm and provide the essentials, but actually provide spaces that we all want to, to be in. But I guess, yeah. There's, there's, yeah, so that we've got these sort of minimum regulations, but I think um, what we really do need is the sort of flexibility so for planners designers to be thinking about building homes that are suitable for people with changing needs and just to have a think about the fact that we're not when we talk often about homes for older people people's minds immediately go to um residential care homes or dementia friendly homes it's a really tiny tiny percentage of the population that live in those sorts of homes the vast majority of people live in ordinary homes so how do we make sure that um uh we're building these homes that, that are adaptable and people can stay in uh, and we and interestingly we did some polling work that showed that the majority of people um would be happier to live in the sorts of homes that are you're able to stay in and that you're able to adapt and would welcome some of the changes which we normally put down as sort of accessibility requirements but actually can make um, a more pleasant living um, experience for everybody. No, that's um, no. I, I think what you said is certainly um, resonates with us. And you know, we, when we're looking at um, how property is designed for health and well-being, big factor of that is is the adaptability of, of a property and changing needs. But not mm. necessarily just from an aging perspective, but just the changing needs of a family or a couple um, to, to meet a, you know the, the, the change in their lives. But um, I, I would probably um, assume that the changes and or, or um, building in adaptability and flexibility in a property can be done quite cheaply. I don't. I wouldn't imagine this has to be a you know, huge add-on cost. And when, whenever you know, in our experience, 
well-being is considered in property it's always considered as a oh crikey that's that's going to increase my budget but but it never does and I, I would probably assume that's the same for building in these accessibility and adaptability functions would you say yeah and I think that I think you're right that is often the um the pushback that um that you hear from um local authority planners that they've been told that you know this is more expensive and it will cost more money um, and I think it, again it goes back to the usability of what's being created and actually building homes that um, meet the needs that you know we're, we're building these homes because people need them so let's build them in the way that they're actually usable for everybody. Mm. No, thank you. Couldn't That's agree more. Um, Holly, I've got, uh, we're, we're coming up to the, very close to the end. So this is actually the, the final question before you give your final thoughts. So you're nearly, you're nearly away. Um, but this is actually a real life question that we have been asked uh, by one of our council partners. So what, the, and, and it's, it fits in quite nicely with the topic that we're currently on. Um, and what they are looking to do is they're looking to create design guidance for their borough to deliver um, more inclusive new homes that can house occupants of any age, but also allow ageing occupants to live there independently for longer. So what does that sort of inclusive home look like? And I know that you are from an academic research background as opposed to a more detailed design um, background but and you've sort of just touched on creating more accessible homes but are there any other aspects that people should be aware of or other considerations that we should be making so i think what we what we need is um and again you can have a look back at the building regulations and um some of what we've talked about around the accessibility uh, and our and our home coalition sort of sets out some of this in more detail a home that is able to be accessed by everybody is some, somewhere where, for example, there's a step-free access. Maybe the home is built so that it's reinforced in certain parts so that, for example, if you needed to put a stair lift in, you could do that. It's a home that's got a bathroom downstairs so that, or at least a toilet downstairs so that if, for example, um, it's a two-storey uh, building, but you needed to be able to to just live on the ground floor, and th that individuals were able to do that. It's things like that. It's about having space and light. It's about having a um, a home that can be properly heated to a, a certain degree, and that yes gives that flexibility. There's also other small things, um, and we we've got a. A retail design project um, that people can get some more information from our website on where we're working with a couple of retailers um, to, to review for example their kitchen cabinet offer <laughs> to make sure okay. that, for example like there are uh, a door handles that um, are much easier for people to use and um, maybe have arthritis or poorer vision than, than others. So, for example, as a standard, maybe we could get all retailers to use some of these, which look perfectly fine, um, to promote more of these more accessible um, fixtures um, and fittings. For example, um, how you turn on your tap, um, whether it's got twisty handles or whether it's got um, one of those levers that you just pull up. All of these sorts of little things um, 
which make a big difference to people's uh, ability to use in a safe way their home as they age or of course younger people who may have um, accessibility needs. Yeah I think that's um, a really really important way to, to finish um, in that it's it's the small things that really matter. I remember back when you had invited me to the event, the unveiling of this research at the House of Lords, and I remember, I can't, I can't remember her name, but one of the first speakers who spoke mentioned that one of her friends who was in his 90s, um, he had a fall in his home, and which is obviously a, a terrible incident, um, but that was made significantly worse by his wall lights were glass and they were above a glass tabletop bedside table. So he fell into a glass wall light and then into a glass bedside table, which made his injuries significantly worse. And then at that age, being stuck in hospital for a lot longer than what he mm. ideally wanted to be. So... It, it, I think you hit the yeah, yeah. It horrible, horrible, and it's just such yeah. a small consideration that I don't know his background, but potentially he had been in that home for 10, 20, 30 years, and just you would not think that that could be an actual risk to your health and well-being. But as your mobility changes and your needs change, that that seemingly tiny little design aspect actually becomes a significant risk to your quality of life. Yeah. Or, for, you know, and the, the, that's the other thing about those sorts of small hazards. Could be a rug on the, mm. on the floor that is a trip hazard, which means that um, somebody breaks their hip. And that's a, that's a life changing event, which will, um, for some people, they are never able to fully get back to living their lives how they had uh, how they had done before. So making sure that people are aware of the risks or that there are people around that can support individuals to make these small changes. It's really important. And we're not saying, of course, that the government or industry has to be the one that steps in and pays for all of this. And it's about a real collaboration between um, uh, all of the parties that are involved. So providing the information and advice and um, uh, to, to those who can pay for it themselves. But then how do we step in and support um, those who, who can't? So it's a real collaborative effort. Yeah, so, uh, Holly, that you just you just mentioned, and, and uh, actually it was Adam talking about the the glass um, features in that in that home. I was just just thinking it's a bit of a, an off topic point, really, but um, I can imagine that a, a huge um, barrier to to make changes in existing homes is actually explaining to an older population. I think it's probably the, the, the further end of, of age as Adam saying a ninety year old. But I was just thinking if I said to my great aunt who's of a similar age. I think we could we could potentially make some changes here and here. She'd probably say no because I'm used to it like this and I like it like this. So I just think it's there could be that that potential barrier as well. Is that something that you've come across? And this is a bit of a, a, a side discussion, no, but it's no, just something of interest, of interest, really. Yeah, definitely. And um, I think that's where we have to somehow uh, explain to people, and maybe that's through. You know, we've got video case studies on our website to people who were living in poor quality homes not not for the reasons of um that we've just been talking about but there are different ways in which we can try and communicate and uh, make changes to and um, to support one another and i and i realize all of this is 
this is very hard stuff. I mean, we all eat things that we know that we shouldn't do and we don't do the exercise that we that we think we should do. Um, you know, all of that investment in the future. Um, it, it's very difficult for people to make changes and, and we're all, nobody's exempt from that. Um, but yes, maybe, you know, uh, a great nephew might have more sway than, you know, a public health professional that knocks on the door so I think we have to keep trying all sorts of different um, routes in to try and support people but also think about how do we um, how do we demonstrate those behaviors ourselves couldn't very agree more thank you very much yeah. um, so Holly have you got any final thoughts any recommendations or advice um, this is the 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 finale of uh, of our talk. So if, if you've got anything you want to wrap up or anything that you would like to say. No, no final thoughts from me, but I mean, I'm very pleased to, to hear that you'll be putting some links to further information for people that want to find out um, um, a bit more about uh, what it means to be living in a poor quality home and how do we identify that and what do we do when we spot there's a problem. So um, I encourage everybody to look at that who, who thinks that they or someone they know might need some support. Um, and anyone who's listening that, that's in a professional capacity that has something that they think they might like to contribute to our work, please do get in touch. As I said, we've got sort of little different projects that we're working on, which together as a whole, we hope will um, uh, we can use to improve the, the quality of the homes that are already out there, but also to make changes to the quality of homes that are being developed. So um, yes, feel free to, to get in touch. And how can people do that? How can people find you personally and also Centre for Aging Better if they want to get in touch? So our website is www.aging-better.org.uk and you can select we've got a tab at the top which is our work and if you go down to safe and accessible homes you'll see all of our housing work there um, and my email um, is holly h-o-l-l-y dot holder h-o-l-d-e-r at aging-better.org.uk thank you very very much what a, uh, a fantastic episode Thanks for listening to the Built for Life podcast. If you learned something new today or found value from hearing from a different property perspective, please comment on what you found useful as it helps us understand what you like and what you want to hear more of. And also please subscribe if you want more and most importantly, please share this video to the people in your network you believe will get the most value from the information as you are personally helping spread information and education across the industry. As they say, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change your world. And by you watching and sharing this, you are now part of that group. And just to finish, if you would like unlimited free access to the world's best research and resources related to health, well-being and the built environment, you can subscribe to the Life Proven Library where academic research, reports and case studies are regularly added. They're then reviewed in detail and the key findings are extracted into easy to use dot points and also a brief summary video. So you don't even need to read the reports. All the heavy lifting has been done for you as you can just watch the summary. 
So just head to www.lifeproven.co.uk and click on the button library at the top of the page. And as always, if you have a project, an investment opportunity, or you are interested in a collaboration and would like to discuss directly, you can contact us at adam at lifeproven.co.uk.